Okay, folks, another fun one for you. Uh, this is an episode with Dr. Melissa Bays Burke. Uh, she is at the University of Oregon, does a lot of work with language, and I'm going to talk to her about some of what she's doing in her lab right now, because we all know that the real problem in language, teaching, learning, etc., is not the racialized languagers, okay? It is the white perceiver, the white listener, right? And so we're going to talk about, you know, how can we actually teach the white perceiver to be better at perceiving, you know? So it's going to be an interesting conversation. If you if you enjoy the work, again, please support it on Patreon. I appreciate anything. But it's pretty straightforward that that's what this episode is. And I hope that you enjoy the conversation. All right. So welcome back, folks, to Standardized English. I am J.P.B. Gerald. You know that. I'm here today with Dr. Melissa Bays-Burke, M2B2. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the perceiving subject, but first I'll have her introduce herself and tell us all the things that she gets up to in her lab and all that, that she is able to tell us about. Yeah, sounds good. So I um, am a professor at the University of Oregon. I'm an associate professor and um, in the Department of Linguistics, I do work on um, broadly speaking, speech perception, speech production, um, with a sort of special focus on how people communicate when they don't share a language background. Um, my work is psycholinguistic in nature, meaning I take like experimental approaches to uh, the work that I do. And I direct the speech perception and production lab at the UVO, where we answer any questions about speech perception and production, some of which are about language learners, some of which are about uh, listeners sort of in general, and some of which more recently have been more like social questions as well. So we're, we're expanding our reach a little bit in the lab. Um, and one of our kind of specific areas of focus, and one thing I think we'll talk more about today is this question of how people um, can learn to understand unfamiliar accents in general, um, especially when those accents belong to a language learner um, and how we can sort of flip the way we think about who is responsible for communication from talking about the language learner bearing that full responsibility and thinking also about um, the perceiving subject. So there's, there's, two, there's a, there's a, a series of basic questions that I wanna ask and then there's a meta question that I okay. want to finish off with it towards the end. So the basic question is, let me just give you an example. I went and I taught in South Korea for two years. And um, when I got there, I had not ever been in a situation where I was surrounded by Korean speakers. I have been to, I've been fortunate enough to be, to be in plenty of countries, but specifically Korean speakers, right? Mm -hmm. And because I was teaching English and also because English is so, you know, promoted there, um, a lot of people were speaking English to me, mm -hmm. but they were Korean. And, you know, most of the time I understood what they were saying, but uh, there were times when I didn't. But then by the time I left, you know, I figured out what people were trying to communicate to me, even if the word was quote unquote wrong. I mm -hmm. was like, oh, I filled in the gaps, you yes. know? And my question is, is that, is it a more worthwhile thing for someone to, you know, if they're in a place where they're hearing lots of different 
types of speech and accents to just sort of absorb and take notice of things? Or is there a more streamlined and direct way to do that, to like sit down and like, you know, reverse Duolingo, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So we work on the reverse Duolingo side of things in our lab. So essentially we work on whether we can get people to get better at understanding the speech quickly um, in a way that generalizes to both new talkers and new accents with less practice. And what we've been able to show in our lab is that if you get exposed to, let's say, five different accents for half an hour one day and for half an hour the next day, you get better at understanding a sixth new accent our gains are on the order of, you know, like 20% gains in intelligibility. So intelligibility defined here, you know, in our field as how much of the speech you can actually transcribe and write down. So 20% isn't, isn't a joke here, right? Of like what you're actually able to, you know, write down what, what the person you're listening to is saying that doesn't quite get at this issue of how much you really like understand right if this is like if we're sort of mean in our scoring so if you don't write down exactly the words we were looking for you don't get it right right so it could be the case that people are actually understanding even more than what we're sort of giving them credit for but the the short version and something i think is super exciting if you're a person who cares about being able to communicate well with other people is this like reverse Duolingo process is super short compared to the actual Duolingo process, right? So if you're a Korean speaker in your situation, right? If, if you're one of those Korean speakers who's trying to communicate with you, presumably they're putting in way more than 30 minutes in two days to understand you, but you could put in just way less effort and with just some like really specific practice of trying to understand the speech you get better at understanding it. I don't like how my son understands me better than he, I understand him. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I'm like, show me the turtle. And he's like, but he can't say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's interesting because that's also sort of sad because it's like, you don't really have to try that hard and well, yet they don't want to. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's a thing that, in my mind should be taken as like really great news because it's so easy right, to, to learn, to understand people around you. And it's a super common complaint. Like if you look at um, complaints that advisors get at universities, one of the top complaints that they get from students is I can't understand my professor or I can't understand my TA because of their language background. And what we're showing here essentially and what plenty of other labs have also shown is like, you just need to try a little bit and you can get better at this. And, you know, other labs, I'm thinking specifically of some of the work that Murray Monroe has done and Okun Kong, um, they've shown that, you know, if you just tell people how accent adaptation goes, that can even help. Just like telling people, hey, you can get better at this. They actually can get better at it and do relatively quickly. So I think it should be something that like society is heartened by, but you know, as you will not be surprised that society is not awesome about this particular thing. And instead of being heartened by it, what we often will hear is like, well, I don't have any trouble understanding 
my friend who shares a language background, why should I even try, right? Like, shouldn't they try to be more comprehensible to me? And But they're already trying anyway. Yeah, uh, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to be one of those people who's like, well, then everyone should just travel because they can't. But also exactly. like, you know, it's like you... I don't know. I had a coworker who was a former coworker because she was bad at the job, but mm-hmm. this isn't why she was bad at the job. But she uh, she kept talking about how this one person we had to interview for the work was very hard to understand. He's not hard to understand. Sometimes he mumbled. That's a little hard sure. to understand. Sure. But, <laughs> but yeah, you just have to ask him to say it again if you're right. not mumbling. It was had nothing to do with his accent. It's just, you know, sometimes he talked into it like his sleep. It's like, all right. Right. right come on man uh but you know this man clearly had been studying english for decades he just happened to be from nigeria yeah uh and she's just couldn't put in the you know two percent effort and this is new york so i don't know what it is where you're gonna go and and you expect people are all gonna sound the same so i don't really i don't don't get it in new york uh you know there's places where you really hear very little else unless you're on the internet or watching tv or something but in new york so i don't get it i mean i get get it but yeah 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 i mean i think you know the super basic empathy that you when you travel or when you try to communicate in a language or situation that you're not particularly comfortable in the empathy of not being able to communicate as clearly as you might like to be able to communicate, I think results in a lot more patience for situations where you you can't understand the person immediately, right? And I think people have two sort of basic reactions to that. Reaction one is like, I'm giving up because this person isn't clear and I'm never going to be able to understand them. And so people just kind of, the way we talk about it in our lab is that they're rejecting some communicative burden, right? But should be split between two parties. And instead they're saying like, no, no, it's not my job. Um, or you can say, okay, I'm, I'm gonna try here. The, the analogy we love to use in the lab is one that my former undergraduate student who's now a PhD student, Drew McLaughlin uses. And she talks about um, the difficulty you experience when moving a couch, right? Like if you have one person trying to move a couch, and a second person is just watching, it's going to be super hard to move that couch. And it's going to be like maybe impossible in some circumstances. But if you have two people who are trying to move a couch, it still might be awkward. It still might be frustrating and challenging in some ways, but it's going to be possible in a way that with one person, it would not be. And it's certainly going to be easier and probably more pleasant for both parties than than you know, with the single couch mover and observer sort of situation. And so, you know, our sort of basic plea is like, help move the couch, <laughs> like just help lift up the couch. And it's like, yeah. and I, you know, it, it's like people, people might say erroneously, but they might say, well, you know, they should meet me halfway because they're in my environment. Sure. Like, I don't agree with that but I could see the logic in it. However, mm-hmm. they're already going a lot more than halfway. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, like in this 90, is- 90, 10 here. Just exactly. 90, 10, you know. Exactly. And this is the place that, you know, it's super clear to me that it's not a language issue in reality, right? Because in reality, that person has already, so if you, 
if you hear lessons that people promote about like English only movements, right? They'll say things like, well, you know, if they're in my country, if they're in my place, they should be trying to communicate in a way that most people can understand, meaning I can understand, right? But they'll, they'll make this sort of most people, most understandable argument. Everybody's saying. Exactly. <laughs> and then you see people who have been studying English for dozens of years. I mean, really dozens of years who have spent thousands of hours on the task of learning English. And when that's still not enough, and when you say that like, okay, well, that's, they, they learned language, but that, that wasn't quite enough. What they really need to do is like, sound like me. What you're saying at that point is that it's, it's not really about language. It's about this like othering that you can do when you hear somebody with an accent that allows you, licenses you to, to shut them down and shut them out. I forget which article I was reading. But, but it was a really interesting experiment. You probably read it, where they, where they were doing an experiment where people were listening to people talk and, you know, connecting with faces and, you know, trying mm-hmm. to do, you know, those things have been done before. This was a, a newer one where um, they, they did it like five times. Like they did it over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and they showed that the breakdown wasn't just like, oh, they saw a, uh, in this case, Asian face, mm-hmm. and they assumed that they had an accent, it's that the breakdown was in perception or like they were basically making a decision that mm-hmm. this person had had a less intelligible speech. As a, like they were, they were hearing, they basically had two people who sounded the same, mm-hmm. more or less, and they were hearing the same thing because it was the same sound. Right. They made the decision that this person sounded different based on their face. So it was like, right. a, it was a, it was a thought that was happening. Might be a subconscious thought, but it was a thought as opposed to just like how it bounces into their ears. Right. And some of that is shown in Rubin's early work in the nineties. There's some great newer work by Kevin McGowan in the kind of early 2000s um, that basically shows like, if we see a picture, we expect people to sound a particular way. And if, what we hear matches what we expect, we do better than if what we hear doesn't match what we expect. And I don't think there's anything wrong at all with people expecting things to sound a particular way, or, you know, even with people at the kind of earliest stages of listening, thinking like, this is hard. It's hard for me to to do this task of understanding right now. I think what I do have a problem with is when people think this is really hard. And then they think it is fine for me to not understand that person and to blame the fact that it's hard entirely on them instead of thinking about myself and what maybe I can do to make this better or whether this might actually be my fault in this communication, whether my expectations are getting in the way of my own perception. There's, you know, the best plus test, you know, that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause they have one of their metrics is, you know, how well you can understand the people, right? Yeah, yeah. But I, as a, uh, you know, evaluator, I, because I could practice this and I wasn't doing it consciously, but I practice it. I mean, mm-hmm. I can understand everything they're saying. Right. And they told me, no, you are not to put down that you understand them perfectly. And then I realized I didn't, I had all this research on the white perceiving subject hadn't come out yet. This is like 2010 or right. 11. So, um, but 
what I now understand is what they were saying is, how would the standard white perceiving subject understand these people? Exactly. And that's how you're supposed to judge them. And exactly. I'm just like, so in that sense, why am I retesting them? Because the person on the street just doesn't care no matter how long they work on their English. Right. Uh, and I think that's the situation of your, as a learner, you're in this lose-lose situation because, you know, I think there's been a huge move and you've probably, you know, thought a lot about this and talked a lot about this, but there's been a sort of increasing move within the kind of L2 world of what, what should the goal be? Should the goal be sounding like a native speaker, right? And I think there's really good arguments for why we shouldn't have that be the goal, right? We're not making a standard monolingual English speaker out of our learners. They're going to be bilingual and they're going to be, you know, they're going to have different language experiences than like the typical, you know, white monolingual person on the street in, you know, a small town somewhere like where I grew up. But I think that the question of like, who do we care about them communicating with and how can we also help the people they're communicating with become better listeners and better communicators themselves is something that is super ignored in the kind of multi-billion dollar language education industry. I mean, if I'm making things up and since I've spent most of my doctoral studies just coming up with ideas and putting them out in the world within, without any care as to what happens, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm thinking like they need, as learners, people need to be able to understand forms, you know, stuff that will help them be protected right Mm -hmm. you know like I I knew someone who's a senior senior like a like a senior citizen not like a high school or college senior yeah um who like I her her English was at a point where like you know if if she was asked to write her name she was not illiterate which is nothing wrong I'm just saying but like she she, like she couldn't understand that that was what she had to do now that's fine I'm not judging that but that's going to make things difficult for her when she has to go do certain things so like you know it would help her to to be able to understand this is a time when I need to sign something or something like that right that's just just like that sort of thing and I'm not talking about people mistreating her and so forth which could happen but I just mean like you should that it would be helpful for you to know that for sure right especially living here for sure but uh and you know going to the grocery store that sort of thing but that's not like the 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 the, what I think for me if I'm teaching and I haven't taught actually in the classroom for English in a while but my thought is like can you express what you want to express exactly right yeah and if you're expressing those ideas and let's be clear, even if you were born in the United States and so on and so forth, you might not be able to express those ideas in the way you write and talk. So like, exactly. that's, you know, um, but if you can get that voice out, right. Yeah. yeah. Then I think your pr- production mm-hmm. is where it needs to be. It doesn't mean you can't, you don't, you stop working on it. I work on my production of language all the time. Right. Uh, and then it just becomes, you know, how do we get because you can't beat the stigma, right? Right, right. You, know, you can't defeat it. You know, well, and you this is I mean, this can, is the place where I worry. Voice, but you know, right. This is the place where I worry a little bit. I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with people taking classes to try to learn, you know, 
how to express themselves and how to understand the way they want to, to be able to function in society. What I do worry about is that, you know, we set people up for this expectation that if you do this thing, if you learn English, you're going to be in a situation where people are going to understand you and everything's going to be great and fine. And in reality, you know, I, I haven't taught English to students in a very long time, but there were several cases when I was teaching English to students in the U.S., these were people immigrating to go to grad school in the U.S., where there were just really heartbreaking situations where they were trying to communicate and they felt like they were being clear and people just totally refused to communicate with them, right? And and that's a hard thing because if you're telling somebody like, well, just practice a little bit more and everything will be okay. It might not be, you might run into a person who just sees your face and decides that they're not gonna understand you. And as hard as you try, you might not be able to communicate what you wanna communicate with them. Where is it? Right, this is the main crux when I do my presentation on whiteness and English language teaching is say, we in the profession are promising to students, even though we don't really understand that we're doing so, is the chance to get closer to what we conceive of as intelligence, of ability, of whiteness, right? Yeah. However, whiteness by definition depends on exclusion and supremacy. So we're always going to break this promise to these students and they can't become white just by learning the language. Right. So they're always going to be on the outside even though we tell them, no, 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 just learn this. It'll be better for you. You'll make more money. We don't say that part, but sometimes we do. Because I was looking at the, um, you know, all those accent reduction classes. They all say it's better for your, it's better for you financially if you do this. Yeah, so I mean, there's there's an economic argument, especially behind accent reduction, right? And okay. I mean, I'm not an expert in accent reduction because just the idea of it makes me a little bit like fiery, but. Um, it's my understanding that the focus of most accent reduction programs is not really on language learning per se, right? The focus is on sounding different and the goal in those cases, what are you reducing to, right? This is the thing that whenever I see accent reduction, I think, okay, what are, what's the reduction to? Because as linguists all know, everybody has an accent, right? Of some sort. So what are you reducing to? And the answer is white right? You're reducing the accent to be a white American or maybe white British accent, right? And, and that's the thing that we're not being honest, I think, both with ourselves and with our students about. I mean, to me, the disingenuousness is really the issue. If somebody wants to do something like that, as much as I disagree with it, and I think it's harmful that that's the thing that's common, like, I'm not, what's an adult who's making a choice, you know, fine. I, I don't, think it's a good idea for that to be something, but they, like, let's be clear, you can't really reduce an accent. All right. you, you can develop an additional accent. Sure. You know, yeah. if you practice and you want to learn how to sound like certain things, you can practice and you can adopt, mimic, whatever, right? And then if you just start doing it literally all of the time, does that become your accent or is it just an additional accent you have? That's a question for philosophers. But... <laughs> You know, like even on some of these pages, because they, they, they have to be a little woke now, right? They mm -hmm. say, there's nothing wrong with the way anyone speaks. 
right? And they say things like, you know, you can go back to your, I forget what they say, you know, normal voice at any point. And I'm just like, so you're not really reducing it then. They're just- No, I mean, and you, if you one. look at the language they're changing to yeah. use now, they, they say accent modification, yeah. right? But it has this, I was literally just talking about this in this class I teach called Language and Power today about this idea that, you know, you see this narrative that like, because people have to be woke in these various ways, you see this narrative where it's like, all ways of speaking, all ways of communicating are beautiful. All dialects are wonderful. And in some of the language, you get this like super Orwellian description where it's like, it's just that some languages are more useful than others, or some dialects or some styles are more useful than others. And it reminds me so much like it feels like it's directly lifted from animal farm right? like, uh, some languages are more equal than others all languages are equal though it feels absolutely wild that people are saying that um and they say it because they believe it and because our society treats languages that way you know it, it bothers me because i i bought into it because i didn't know any better when i started teaching i was 21 you know and i just mm -hmm. this is what i think right Mm -hmm. Now in Korea, we weren't really trying to reduce accents, but I mean, like when I came back to New York, um, you know, the students would come up to me and say they wanted to, to try and sound a certain way. And, you know, uh, I didn't understand the harm, what was happening. I didn't do it because it wasn't my job. Like that wasn't right. the classes we were teaching weren't that, but right. like, I didn't, you know, challenge the fact that that was something that was being done by the same organization, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and because like I keep saying like to me and it's the same way I think about like we call ourselves you know English language teachers or whatever whatever the phrase is and I use ELT if only because it's the all it's the most general to covering all the different types of English sure. language teaching um even though I don't find it useful to describe that way but it's the best I can come up with mm -hmm. anyway I think that since we're teaching standardized English, and I've said this, this I said this way back in the second episode of my show two years mm -hmm. ago, but, uh, and it's in my book too, is that like, if we positioned ourselves, if we called our, and it's in the language magazine articles, when I say, if we referred to it as the teaching of standardized English, you know, I wouldn't bother me that much. Then mm -hmm. you could make the choice to do that. Right. You say, we are teaching, you're going to learn standardized English. Mm -hmm. And here are the potential benefits of adopting these ways of languaging yeah. right and you can agree or disagree with those benefits but you're being honest about everything right then people will either do it or they won't do it yeah but and then or you can choose not to do that and then go different ways because right now what you have is like people who are trying to challenge things but it's still under this more standardized umbrella and there's only so much they can challenge exactly. um and you know there's still some, and, and, you know, because, you know, the field, they, they love the acronym, they got a new acronym, yep. acronym, you know, I saw, you know, part of what, I don't know if you saw my little infographic I just made today, but, no, oh, yeah, it's funny, um, there's, it's this thing with my, my, my colleague, Clara, um, we talk about this all the time, and, you know, people will be like, five strategies for equity, and it's just like, yeah, that's not how that you can't just strategy to equity. Um, and it's like an infographic, which is so we made a satirical one is the point. Okay, look at it. It's funny. Yeah. Um, but 
I think it was last week where we saw some lady put together like, you know, five quick stretch, something, I don't know. But the point is all of them now say multilingual learners. Right. Right. And that's technically more accurate than mm -hmm. English language learners. And yeah. this is all following federal policy, by the way, right? right. <laughs> you know, right. But, um, so nobody can think for themselves, like, well, it just it says, you know. Um, and so it's 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 not inaccurate, for sure. But you know that you're still putting them in a different class, right? Right. Right. So, I mean, so, so it's like I was talking to a woman who has experienced homelessness, which is how I'm saying it like that for a reason. But on the other hand. She, I was talking to her and she said, and she agreed with me that like, it really doesn't matter whether you call them homeless or people who are unhoused, if you just leave them without a house. Right. If we just change the terminology, right? So this is, um, there's been some really interesting and I think great work coming out of University of Michigan. Um, Loretta Chang just wrote a paper with some of her colleagues about like, problematizing the concept of native speaker in psycholinguistic work, right? Because people love, 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 love talking about native speakers in psycholinguistic work. Yeah. And, you know, my sort of response to this has been, or like L1 versus L2, I think my response to this can best be summarized in a paper that I wrote recently with Kevin McGowan and Drew McLaughlin, where you know, at the very beginning, we have this footnote about how we're using the terms native and non-native, and we're using the terms L1 and L2 to mean first and second language. And we understand that those terms come with their own baggage and have issues. But we point out that the problem isn't actually the terms, right? The problem isn't whether I call something L1 or L2 or native or non-native or however I want to describe the, the users of language. The problem is with the ideologies that come with those terms. And if we're just coming up with new terms that feel less, you know, sort of, they feel less othering to us, right? The people who are not the people experiencing these terms usually, but if we come up with other terms, we're not solving the fundamental problem, which is people feel licensed both, you know, in the general public and researchers and teachers feel licensed to view native as superior to non-native, L1 as superior to L2. And that ideology isn't going to change if we just come up with some other term for it, right? If we call L2 speakers language learners instead, maybe that is more respectful, but like, what, what is that? What is that bias? Because the attitude is still the same. I mean, that's, yeah, I, cause I talk about this, like, I don't want to give away my whole book, but I talk sure. about, there's a whole chapter on like, well, the, the conceit of the book is that like for complex reasons, I'm mapping the symptoms of antisocial personality disorder onto the English language teaching industry. Okay. <laughs> it makes sense when you read it. It, has some, sure. it also has something to do with Tucker Carlson. It just, just go, away, go away there for a second. Okay. But um, so each of the middle chapters is the, the seven symptoms, the seven symptoms. And mm -hmm. um each one of them is a chapter in the middle of the book. The first part mm -hmm. is like connecting all of my broad ideas into one. The second part is the seven symptoms. And the third part is, okay, my actual research, like me interviewing people and like, what happened? Right. Um, like, so, cause I tried to, I trying to do something about, you know, right. like whiteness and language teachers. Anyway, um, I have not solved anything, which is like, it's kind of an anticlimactic book. 
well, <laughs> uh, so, um, but then I have recommendations for like how we should do stuff. But anyway, one of the chapters is about like native speaker and so forth. And I say, and I just wrote an article about this for Japanese um, J JALT, right? Japanese mm -hmm. language teacher yeah. names um, about like, uh, we've been talking about this native speaker thing since the eighties. Like the first, the one I can first oldest one I can find is, you know, you know, from like Tom Thomas Piketty from like 1985. Right. Is older than I am. Yeah. And uh, nothing has changed. Okay, well now we don't put native speaker in the ads so much anymore, but we still put white people in the ads. So it's like <laughs> right. You know, um uh we you know we just use softer versions of the same thing and it's like mm -hmm. because you're not interrogating like why you all want to change the surface but you want to examine what's going on underneath right yeah and i think that 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 makes people when you ask people to do that it makes them super duper uncomfortable right because then they have to investigate what is actually what their beliefs actually are and it's so much easier if you just say well like i'm on the side of the learner Right. And that's why we can't use this term anymore. I mean, I think your your analogy to like people experiencing homelessness is the same sort of thing. It's an easy way to sort of signal that you're on this side, right? You're on this side because you know the right terminology and you're using it in the right way. But if you continue to behave in exactly the same way that you behaved before, you know, when you called them homeless people you're not changing anything other than like feeling better about yourself for buying into this in general. That is what you really got to look at this. I'm just going to put it on screen. It's fun. Okay, I don't know why. I don't know why this, this is not going to be good audio content. I apologize, but um, I don't care. Um, <laughs> I have to make it bigger though. Hold on. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, so because it just ties into everything that we're doing. So, you know, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the whole point about all this is, is like, now this is the meta question is like, mm -hmm. okay, the people who want to make this change, we may find a way to make their development and perception better more quickly right because mm -hmm. that's part one it's like yes forget about who's doing it people need to be volunteering or interested in doing it and we can make a better way for someone who's interested in learning how to perceive different types of communication you know faster they, mm -hmm. they would have done it those are the people however who probably would have done a been interested in the first place right right like they may have been overseas or in a different country or they're in a big city with lots of accents and so right. therefore they're already primed to be somewhat empathetic or interested or they're the sort of teacher who would like to know these things so maybe it takes them you know a concerted couple of days to sit down as opposed to, you know, the osmosis of a couple of years. Right. Great. That's yeah. good. Yeah. However, then there's all these people who don't care. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, from a practical perspective, I think, especially within the English language teaching world, it is cru crucial, critically important 
that any sort of training any teachers undertake, whether that is like the, you know, you're getting an, a master's in TESOL or you're, you know, taking a class on language teaching, or it's like the training before you start teaching somewhere. I think a critically important component is being clear on your role in communication, your sort of, um, you know, responsibilities in communication. And from my perspective, being super clear on the decisions that you're making about what varieties of language you're teaching, what varieties of language you're including in your classroom. And I think also helping educate your students, right, about, you know, this is the disingenuous part that you talked about earlier, being super clear about what you can and can't do with the language that you're providing them. And being, and I think just a lot of teachers don't, don't even think about it, right? Um, they're not encouraged to think about it at all. The question of how to get this to broader society is a trickier question, but I think not an impossible one, especially when you think about how many businesses, you know, using the sort of economic capitalist argument against them, businesses rely so much now on intercultural communication and international communication that if businesses could be compelled by financial incentive <laughs> to perform these tasks better. I mean, we know for a fact that communication between people who don't share a language background takes longer than communication between parties that do share a language background. If businesses could be compelled to speed that up just by having their people practice a little bit, <laughs> right? Um, that would be sufficient to me to like get this out there a little bit more, right? And I, I don't know the answer for compelling people in this way, but you know, plenty of businesses do all sorts of like anti-implicit bias training, right? And we know that doesn't work for shit. Sorry, I'm not supposed to swear. No, that's not, that's <laughs> okay. no I curse on this thing. The last okay, one, perfect. I mean, like I've had a whole episode where I was talking about times I was called the N-word, so. Okay, perfect. Um, that doesn't work, right? We know anti-implicit bias training doesn't result in actual change. I've shown you that this you training- You feel bad for a second though. You feel bad for a second. Yeah, you feel bad for a second and you get to go home and talk about like all of the terrible things and like swear that you're not gonna do it when you get the, the job application in front of you next. But then you get the job application in front of you and you do it anyway. And we, I think have pretty compelling evidence that this actually works. You understand people better. And so like if a, an agency, if an organization is gonna spend their money on all sorts of trainings that don't work, why don't you spend your money on one that actually might work and might actually help you make more money if that's if that's your jam? I mean, you know, you know, they, you know like they, 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 these people are very are very concerned about losing money, right? Right. All of the both companies, schools, whatever, they're concerned about losing money. Mm -hmm. But they spend all this money on this stuff right, mm -hmm. then it would cost them less money because it's easier? Yeah. I you mean, know? <laughs> you know businesses that pay for their employees to learn better English. Right. Right? And like, maybe instead of making all your employees spend hours and hours and hours of work time to learn better English, you could have a bunch of the rest of your employees learn how to understand their colleagues better. And it would take less time and cost less money. I mean, I, I think, you know, you're going into teaching like, you know, because I used to wonder like, 
there is no way, especially in a big city or if you're in like a migrant area or something, mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to speak the same language as everybody in the classroom. You're not. Mm -hmm. It's just not mm -hmm. possible, right? Um, and people probably thought, well, the best way to do that is for them to learn a little bit of the language. I mean, sure, maybe how to say hi and names and stuff like that. That's not bad. Right. You know, but like you are not going to learn enough. No. So perhaps it would be more uh, efficient to do it this way. And, you know, I don't want to be all capitalist about it, but forget about that. It's like also just empathy in terms of like that, you know, right. and, and, and especially for teaching, like not just teaching, but especially like any social service, social work yeah. and things like that. Like you don't have to be, you don't have to learn the, any languages to do this. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think the challenge is that from my perspective, at least having talked to lots of people about this, empathy doesn't sell as well right? Telling people to like, don't be a jerk doesn't work, doesn't work as well on as jerks. It doesn't work on jerks, right? And we want it to work on jerks because jerks are sort of the fundamental problem in this right. communication system in general. And, you know, it's kind of astonishing to me that people are willing to pay people to tell them how to, like, there was this huge kerfuffle a couple of weeks ago now on Twitter about Planet Word, the museum in DC hosting this person who was like going to teach you how to Marie Kondo your language and take out the word trash in your language. And this is a situation that people are like perfectly happy to have somebody tell them like how they should speak because as a society, we put so much of the burden of communication on the person talking and almost none of it on the listener, ignoring the fact that in order for communication to occur, you need a couple of parties. You need a person who's producing a message, right? Speaking or signing that message. And you need a receiver of that message. And if we put all the burden on one person, we're designing a system that's going to fail. You know, it sort of reminds me, these aren't quite the same thing, but um, it reminds me of how certain white people, not all, but certain, mm -hmm. um, although it's not always the same white people, but... <laughs> within the within the sphere of whiteness there is you know certain adulation for extremely abstract stuff that refuses to be direct made right. by white people right? right and it's just like right. oh and i'm just like but that movie didn't have an ending and they're like oh but you had to think about it and i'm like all right, all right fine uh but then they don't want to put in 10 minutes of work to fill in the gaps from, from their perceived gaps from what someone else is saying Right. right. And yeah. I mean, it's, there's, you know, the whole issue that we haven't even gotten into of like whose accents are the problem anyway, because that's not equitable across speakers. Right. And it's not equitable across accents and a Spanish accent from a white person from Spain is not perceived in the same way as a Spanish accent of a speaker who, you know, is, um, Afro-Latino, for example, right? Um, and you see similar sorts of things with, with all sorts of accents and communication. We haven't gotten into that, but it's a, that's part of this whole thing, right? And like who, one of my students today was talking about how she had a teacher in high school who was Scottish and had a super strong Scottish accent. And anytime there were any miscommunications with the Scottish teacher, students were like, oh, that's adorable. We thought you said this thing and you said this thing instead, right? And I don't think the students at her high school were like trying to be bad racists about language, 
right? But she said they had a very different experience with an instructor who was a Spanish speaker from Central America, right? Where like miscommunications were complained about in a way that they weren't with this person who um, had a similar sort of barrier to communication. And so, you know, who we're sort of making allowances for and who we're not isn't a surprise, right? But it's definitely incorporated with all of these issues of, of who we're willing to sort of work to understand and who we're not willing to work to understand. It's, but the thing, it's like, it's just not even that much work. I know it's easy I know. to say having done the work, but like- Well, when you, I don't think anybody would argue that it's certainly less work than the person learning the language in the first place. Right? I mean, anybody who has tried to study a language understands that you can't get gains of that sort in that time period. You can't, it, two days is not going to buy you a ton of communicative benefit. And it does in this case of training the listener. I think, you know, I just wonder if that was part of state certification. You know, it's, it's if, because some the certification, you don't have to speak Spanish or depends on the, you don't have to, right? Mm -hmm. Necessarily. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that you should because you don't know who's going to be in your class. Um, exactly. But like, I mean, when we speak about accents, then you get the white people who are just speaking English with Spanish words. Um, and I'm just like, so that accent's okay. That yeah. one's fine. Right. Yeah. That yeah. was perfect. You know, I had people who in my French class who are just, they just, they're just speaking English. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, uh, I'm just like, you're not, you're not trying to do yeah. anything different. Right. Um, and they would get, you know, good grades. I'm not saying they should be shamed for it, but I'm just saying if you're allowed to do that and I'm just like, that's just, you're just doing the same thing. Right. You're just doing the same thing. Just right. like mercy. I'm like, come on. I know. Um, <laughs> But like it on like a French purist, I'm just like I'm trying. Why aren't you yeah. trying? Right. Uh, and so that's why I think the emphasis on like oh well she's bilingual. I mean among like people who would be assumed to be monolingual because they're like white Americans. It's like yeah okay, but what do the people they talk to actually think about the way they sound? Sure. Yeah, and I think you know my preference would be that we find ways to incentivize this particular skill and that we treat it like it's a skill not like it's like magic that you can understand people but we treat it like it's a skill that you can practice and improve and we incentivize it because I think until we do that we're stuck with the thing that people will do when they feel guilty or because they're like a good person and they do want to try, right? But then the jerks can get away with not doing it. And so until we incentivize it somehow, whether that's fiscal incentive or certification incentive or, you know, in our hiring criterion, it's going to be something that isn't incentivized and just isn't done, you know. Is, what would you call it? Perception proficiency? Yeah, I think that's, a reasonable thing to call it. Language, language perceptions, language perception. Yeah. 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 I think that works from my perspective. Um, because obviously proficiency usually goes the other way and it might be good to use it in the other direction. Yeah. Well, and 
you know, if you think about skills that you want a teacher and instructor to be proficient in, in general, being able to communicate with your students is something that I think we do want people to be proficient in, right? And, but flipping the coin and saying that it's not just production proficiency, it's not just like clarity of instruction in the classroom, but it's also your ability to understand your students. That to me feels like a pretty critically important skill for an instructor to, to bring to the table. Now, I know you're all studying it in a really, you know, concrete way where yeah. people have to transcribe, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, my question more off left field is like, what can be gleaned about someone's ability to interpret what the person is saying as opposed to just understand the words? Because yeah. my interest sometimes is not just in, did I understand what the words were, which is sometimes very important, yes. but also like, did, can I understand what they were trying to convey? Right. So the reason we have started with this construct that in our domain is called intelligibility, which is just literally, can you transcribe or repeat what the person says, is because we know that that um, doesn't always super strongly correlate with other measures like comprehensibility, which is how easy you felt it was to understand the person, or um, you know, even measures of comprehension, like tests of how people understand things. And part of the reason why we wanted to, so I have I have one study that um, an English two English language teachers at the university contacted me about doing, and it's one of my favorite things we published. Um, where we looked at ESL faculty. So at UO, we call them ESL faculty um, and um, content instructors. And we looked at intelligibility. So how well people were able to transcribe the speech and then also comprehensibility, how well people felt like they could understand it. And we asked some super basic questions about people's attitudes toward the non-native students at UO. So things like, you know, when you have a non-native student in your class, do you feel like they're able to, you know, participate in class? And we gave this like open field for responses as well. And we broadly categorized people in terms of having positive attitudes toward the non-native speakers in their classrooms, neutral attitudes or um, negative attitudes. And what we found is that intelligibility doesn't differ across those three groups at all, right? So if you're a content instructor, somebody teaching, let's say chemistry, or um, you know history, whatever, your ability to actually transcribe the speech doesn't differ across those attitude groups, but how easy you think it was to understand the speech does. So if you have a negative attitude, you are much more likely to say that it's significantly more likely, right? If we wanna use statistical terms, significantly more likely to say that the speech was hard to understand, even if you literally could transcribe the same amount as somebody else. And so I think, you know, the reason we've started with intelligibility is in part because what I'm interested in showing people is, no, you actually can understand it in terms of writing it down. My guess is that attitude and other sort of social factors are going to play in way more to things like how much of the speech do you remember? How much of the speech are you able to like actually understand in some sort of com concrete way, as well as these sort of like subjective measures of like how hard or easy this particular task was. And one thing to, to keep your eye out for, I have a student, um, an undergraduate student who just graduated, Sabrina Piccolo, who um, her honors thesis looked at um, 
a person who speaks Spanish accented English and a person who speaks American English, standard American English, right? Um, talking about either marine biology or um, Mexican history. And she showed that the person with the, the more monolingual accent was perceived as being more knowledgeable and more credible on both topics. But when the person was presented as a non-expert of Mexican history, um, the person with the Spanish accent was perceived as having, you know, more kind of lived experience with this particular thing. And so we see that there's a sort of interplay between accent and our perceptions of those characteristics. But in addition to this test, she did a memory test where she looked at how much people remembered from the thing that they heard. And she found that in all cases, regardless of the expertise, guys they were presented with, people remembered more from the monolingual speaker than from the person who spoke Spanish accented English, so the bilingual speaker. And that's a thing that we need to, to really reckon with, right? Because if people are remembering less, what is it that's sort of getting them into that place where they're gonna remember less, even though the actual content, like literally the content was the same, right? It's just read by two different talkers. Um, so that's our sort of next step is sort of peeling back these layers of these other parts of perception in a more holistic way. But I think I really like having started with the intelligibility piece first. So, cause then I think even farther and I think about people and in work, things like that, school, you know, mm -hmm. they're trying to imply things. They're not, it's not always literal what they're saying, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and this goes for writing too, which isn't what you're doing, but I, mean, mm -hmm. I think it's something I'm interested in is, yeah. is also like, all right, this person is trying desperately to communicate with the majoritized people, but they're right. also trying to say things that aren't literally on the page or in the text. Right. So... That is probably, even if first the person has precise English, that's often what is lost. And I think that, you know, maybe that, that I think that's maybe a sub-skill of the proficiency is like being able to understand what they mean more so right. than just what are the words. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, fundamentally in the end, that's the thing that's important, right? Is the person able to convey the thing that they want to convey? And is the receiver of the message able to get that message? I think the, the sort of challenge of that is showing that there are so many factors that come into play with that, right? There are so many factors that come into play with our ability to like really get what the person is saying um, that might be differentiable, differentiated from our ability to just understand the words. And so I think I like pointing out to people that like, but look, you just, you said you understood, like you were able to understand them, right? Um, I like that being able to point that out to, to the people who are a little bit more, um, stressed out by the prospect of communicating with unfamiliar accents. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I know it just seemed like a good spot. <laughs> yeah, it seems great. Uh, all right. Do you have any final thoughts on these uh, perceiving subjects and how we can turn the tide on this? Should I just go off and start a, a little perceiving subject in business, you know, consulting If anyone firm? can do it. 
you could do it. I, I have faith in your ability to like move the needle on this more than I have faith on my own ability to do that. But um, yeah, I mean, I think having these conversations is so critically important. And, um, you know, even if it's for now preaching to the choir about this, um, it's important for us to think about how this interfaces with all of the other components of language teaching and language learning. And thank you so much. This was really fun. Yeah, I'm glad you sort of talked through a lot of that stuff that because thinking about the really, I don't want to say purely scientific because it discredits our other sides of science, mm -hmm. but you know, um, really psychological, neurological side mm -hmm. of things uh, is something that I think that I don't think enough about because it's clearly happening, but um, I'm out here making silly infographics to make fun of people. So I know. love the silly infographics. And I will say that my sort of selfish motive for doing the more kind of quantitative psychological side of things is that people tend to listen more when you show them a, a chart with some data. And so I could run around all day saying like, look, people aren't doing a careful job of understanding other speakers. But if I can show them with some numbers and a chart in a peer reviewed journal article, um, it buys me some clout that I wouldn't have otherwise. And I thought about that when I started my doctoral degree, but I got fed up with the way I would have to write to do quantitative work. So. I appreciate that. It's not, it's not, um, it's not the solution for everybody. It was the solution for me. Yeah. All right. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you.